Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. We have made it to the end of our revisiting the draft tier series. I've gone through and done 2020, 2019, 2018, and we wrap up the series going back to the 2017 NBA draft class and seeing where a lot of these guys fall now in terms of within my tier system. So I want to go through, as we've been doing, tiers one through four, talk about each player I have within those tiers a little bit. And then I kind of want to look at the series as a whole at the end of this podcast and, and see what we've actually learned or more, more or less what I've learned from doing this exercise because some of the results to me were very interesting. Again, just to kind of review 2020 and 2019, those were two incredibly recent drafts within the last two years. So you would expect, sure, we're doing evaluations and we're doing projections, but they're still pretty raw projections at this point. So you would figure that those tiers one through four would be saturated with more players than us going back and doing 2018 or 2017, for example. Um, that certainly is its own exercise in and of itself. And this yielded some pretty interesting results because the pool of players did get smaller. Now we're in 2017, right about 18 total guys I have between tiers one through four. Um, but some really good names still on this list today from the 2017 NBA draft. So let's start at the top. Tier one, again, for a little bit of a refresher in case you haven't listened to any of our other tiers podcasts, tier one would be your MVP caliber player. So not only just a franchise cornerstone, but somebody you could envision winning an MVP award in the future or be in contention for that award. And in turn, an MVP caliber player is also generally that top option on a really good championship level team. That's the kind of player you're looking for to really vault you into title contention and then take you over the top. So I have two players in this tier, Jason Tatum being in this MVP caliber tier one and also Donovan Mitchell. And it's really interesting when you look at both of these players, their stat lines, last year this this shocked me a little bit i didn't know if basketball reference was pulling a little bit of a joke on me when i was looking at their stat lines but they're eerily similar both averaged 26.4 points per game last year both shot 38.6 percent from the three-point line they both shot very similar in terms of free throw percentage they both averaged over a steal per game their turnovers per game were almost exactly identical. They were within 0.1 of each other. And then they both had a 21.3 player efficiency rating. And you can take a look at some of the synergy profiles. There's obviously a few differences there. Jason Tatum being much more of a polished mid-range scorer and finisher around the basket. Donovan Mitchell rating out much better in terms of perimeter shots away from the basket. And, and those long jump shots is really where Donovan Mitchell thrives. And you even saw that in the playoffs this past year, it seemed like he was almost automatic from three-point range, even pulling up for some of those long twos off the dribble. And Jason Tatum can hit those shots as well. He's just not nearly as efficient when you factor in the volume as somebody like a Donovan Mitchell from long range, for example. But Jason Tatum still, the fact that he can hit those long range shots and again, a more complete scorer from the mid-range and finishing around the basket. He's he's a bigger player. He's six foot nine. 
compared to Donovan Mitchell registering around 6-1. So there's the biggest difference there in terms of their offensive output. And then really defensively, that's why if I had to choose one of these two players, it breaks my heart because I really love Donovan Mitchell. I love everything that he's brought to the table. When I did evaluate this draft class, I thought that Donovan Mitchell was one of those guys who absolutely had a case to being a top 10 pick. You, you look at his game when he was at Louisville and you just really didn't see many holes. Certainly in his offensive game, he showed he was capable of making pull-up jump shots, the athletic freak that he was, the the being able to finish at the rim vertically and, and dunk over people despite his size. You saw a very enticing potential star-level scoring package with Donovan Mitchell, but you also saw the defense. He was a hound, one-on-one, guarding an individual matchup, and you have not seen you have not seen the same level of defensive output from Mitchell. Um, in the NBA, just taking a look at some of his numbers last year, he was only in the 13th percentile in terms of total defense, 17th percentile defending um, ball handlers within pick and roll, 16th percentile defending spot ups, 20th defending short range looks, and 21st defending long range looks, and then 16th percentile guarding against jump shots overall. So definitely not the same level of perimeter defense he's been able to exhibit in the NBA as opposed to college, and that. That, when you compare to Jason Tatum, Jason Tatum has actually morphed into one of the better wing defenders in the NBA. He can guard positions two through four and has been that sort of Swiss Army knife utility type defender for Boston over the last few years. And him and Jalen Brown really do make a tantalizing wing combo on the perimeter in terms of defense and the level of switchability they have, the the number, the variety of different positions that they can guard. Donovan Mitchell is likely guarding the other team's um, opposing point guard that's generally his matchup they they mixed things up a little bit last year especially being able to bring in Mike Conley Mike Conley especially is much better at guarding other teams point cards as well but they were able to mix it up a little bit but Donovan Mitchell's not going to excel guarding up a spot or guarding anybody in the backcourt who's bigger than like 6'4 6'5 he's not going to excel against any of the larger matchups but I go back and I watch some of Mitchell's defense with the Jazz, and I do think he can improve. I think he can be a little bit more active off the ball, and I think he can be a little more intense like he was in college on the ball. Now, whether it all really does come back to size and he's just going to be a limited defender in the NBA because he's only a certain um, height and weight, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case for forever, or maybe it is more of an intensity level type of thing and he he exerts so much effort on the offensive end he's asked to carry an enormous load for the utah jazz offensively that maybe he does come back like some other stars in in the nba we do see this from some top tier players they come on the defensive end they're not exactly exerting full effort possession after possession after possession especially the ones that are asked to do so much in the offensive end of the floor so maybe it's a combination of the two as well but defensively and then some of these scoring aspects in in the second box painted area around the basket though those give the edge to, to Jason Tatum and probably like I said if I was picking between one of the two players I would definitely have Jason Tatum as the higher player he went third pick overall in the draft Donovan Mitchell went 13th overall it's just another example of you see this this late lottery range 11 through 14 very capable of producing star to superstar caliber players and 
it, it really makes you wonder how do these guys fall in the draft? What were the question marks for somebody like Donovan Mitchell when he was coming out? Being the size that he is at the guard spot, could he also be a point guard more or less like he was in college? Could he be a distributor at the NBA level, a true playmaker? Or was he just going to be a, a really undersized two who all he could do was score the basketball, wasn't necessarily familiar with running heavy pick and roll sets all of the time. He's gotten a lot better at doing that in, in the NBA. And and I saw some of the IQ stuff when he was at Louisville in college. He, he's, he's never going to be an excellent passer or even a great passer, but he's been a good passer in the NBA. He's been good enough to at least be a threat where if you do load up on him and you're trying to prevent him from scoring the basketball, he can make the right decision out of a double team and find the open man. He can make the easy pocket pass out of a pick-and-roll set. Him and Gobert have actually become a, a really intriguing combo in the pick-and-roll game with one another when the Jazz elect to go to that type of offense. Um, but but obviously Donovan Mitchell being the, the scoring savant that he is, he can certainly take a matchup one-on-one. He can stretch the defense all the way out because he can hit those really long range perimeter shots. He has, he has one of the most effortless three point strokes. I I think in the NBA, that was definitely put on display last year in the playoffs when he would catch the ball and he would immediately go right up with it. And when I'm talking about those shots don't hit the net on their way down, I mean, they, some of them quite literally don't even hit the net on the way down, let alone the rim. They're just such smooth of makes. It's really impressive the type of shot maker that Donovan Mitchell has become because that was another question mark. Could he be a three-point shooter in the NBA, let alone how prolific he's ended up becoming now that he's established himself as a superstar caliber player? It's it, it's amazing what Donovan Mitchell's done to his offensive game and how far he's been able to carry the Utah Jazz, even though they haven't made it to the conference finals, they haven't made it to the NBA finals. I, I don't expect that run to, to to go much longer. I do expect the Utah Jazz to be firmly entrenched in the Western Conference finals race this year, could potentially be on their way to a berth in the NBA finals. I love what the Jazz have done with their team. Um, they bring in one of my favorite draft picks from the 2021 class, Jared Butler. I mean, that backcourt, Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson, Jared Butler. That is a monstrous backcourt now that Utah has, especially if Butler's healthy. I think he can come in, again, as long as he's healthy, I think he can come in and help that team right away. Then you talk about some of the wing depth with size that they have between Ingles, Bogdanovich, and then obviously up front, they added Eric Paschal. They still have Rudy Gobert. Hassan Whiteside comes in the fold. Now, it's, it's going to be a really interesting team in Utah. I can't wait to see how some of those new parts fit in. And if Donovan Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell can take his game up even another level from what we've seen at 26.4 points per game is a lot, but I'll, I'll be curious to see if he can even stretch that to about 28, 29 points per game. Definitely possible. Um, I think he can get to the line a few more times. Maybe if he gets to the line a little more than six times per game, if he bumps that number up to, to eight or nine, maybe that's the extra two points he needs or three points he needs to, to get that scoring average up to around 28, 29 points per game, which would be an impressive feat um, for, for somebody his size, for, for all that the NBA wants to obsess over these bigger wings these larger shot creators or these big men that can dominate down lower in a variety of ways, like a Joel Embiid or a Nikola Jokic. It's amazing what Donovan Mitchell is coming to the NBA and done. He, he really is like the second coming 
uh, of a Dwayne Wade. It's been impressive to watch. And then and then Tatum, I, I've said a lot of words on Mitchell. I haven't necessarily talked about Tatum a lot, but what what haven't we seen from, from Jason Tatum at this point was thought to be purely an isolation player when he was coming out of college at Duke. He had always known to, to be heavily relying upon the triple threat position, wanted to take somebody one-on-one, use a lot of his footwork to ISO and then create a shot for himself. When he got to Boston in his rookie year, he had to familiarize himself much more with a catch-and-shoot role, get get a lot better shooting the three-point shot from the corners, and then eventually build that out. And he came in, he fulfilled that role. He did a lot of the simple things that Brad Stevens wanted him to do. And he he kept on earning the Boston Celtics trust and and he he grew into this number one scoring option who can hit a shot from quite literally anywhere on the floor and then go down on the other end and guard the other team's best player. Um, Jason Tatum is one of the most underrated two-way wings we have in the NBA. When you use the phrase two-way wings, you're always throwing around like Kawhi Leonard or, or Paul George. You're not always throwing around Jason Tatum. We, we see the type of shots he's able to hit on the offensive end, the, the step back threes, the, the game, one of the clutch type shots that he can make, but you're not always talking about his impact defensively. You're not always talking about his ability to rebound the basketball. His passing ability is a little bit underrated at this point as well. He averaged 4.3 assists per game last year. I, I used a comparison of him when we were talking about the 2021 draft class. Everybody wanted to talk about Jalen Green's offensive ability from a scoring standpoint, but what could he bring to the table in terms of passing the basketball? Could he become a playmaker in the NBA as he continues to develop? And I used Jason Tatum's name as an example for what I think Jalen Green can become, where Jason Tatum's not a great passer, but he's become a really good passer. He's become somebody who you look up on a box score, all of a sudden he has like seven, eight, nine assists in the game, and you wonder how that happened. It's off of a lot of easy reads. He makes the right, the correct, simple pass and in turn, it helps keep the ball moving. He's, he, he became a lot better last year, especially in the second half of the season, of being a more willing passer, not necessarily settling for every single step back isolation shot that he came across. So Jason Tatum, in all aspects, in all facets of his game, is a really, really underrated wing player. And again, I'm incredibly excited to see how he keeps expanding and developing his game as well, because both Tatum and Mitchell are still so, so young, but already among some of the better players in the NBA. So let's move on to tier two. So tier two, I have three players here. And again, a tier two would be a a max contract type player, but not exactly on, on the same level or in the same stratosphere as your tier one MVP caliber players. So the three guys I have amongst tier two would be De'Aaron Fox, Bam Adebayo, and John Collins. I'll start with De'Aaron Fox, who had a pretty underappreciated season last year for Sacramento. I know that the Kings technically underperformed. It's like two years ago, they were in the fight for for a playoff spot. and, And last year, they sort of fell out of the race altogether but Fox still averaged 25 points per game 7.2 assists per game shot about 48 percent from the field 32 percent from three-point range 72 percent from the free throw line those are the two percentages that stick out to you right there obviously the jump shot has been the biggest question mark about his game since he's came into the NBA Um, he's gotten better shooting from the mid-range but he hasn't exactly been able to properly expand that shot from long range but he was still in the 78th percentile in terms of scoring out of spot-ups, was in the 93rd percentile, ironically, 
in terms of post-ups, including passes in the 88th percentile scoring out of post-ups. A really intriguing part of his game is that he can post up smaller guards and, and take advantage around the basket. Um, but he was in the 63rd percentile in terms of picket rolls, including passes in the 53rd percentile in terms of isolations, including passes. So he can finish around the basket. He's become a better mid-range player. He's improving as a catch-and-shoot guy. It's really about getting more efficient on a lot of those long-range looks and continuing to help stretch the defense and open things up, not necessarily just for himself, but also open up his playmaking a little bit to get others involved. Um, and then the other aspect of his game that has been lacking a little bit, sure, he is absolutely outputting a lot of offense to justify a star-level role for himself, but he's also been a little bit disappointing on the defensive end. He hasn't exactly been a, a, a lock-up guard on that end of the floor. I, I certainly see the defense is something that can continue to be improved. I know that Luke Walton has already been on multiple shows doing interviews before the season where he's talked about how he's he wants De'Aaron Fox to put an emphasis on on defense this year for that Kings team, a squad that that struggled really from all positions last year, except for right around the basket. I know Rashawn Holmes has become a much better defender around the basket in his career and, and was a rim protector for the Kings last year, but everywhere else on the, on the perimeter defensively, I mean, they don't, they don't have one of those go-to type stoppers um, to, to guard some of those perimeter centric matchups like Buddy Heald's not exactly the best defender. Tyrese Halliburton, for, for all that I've praised some of his off ball efforts, he still has a ways to go to being a better on ball defender. And then yet yeah, De'Aaron Fox coming up short in that area as well. That that doesn't exactly bode well to containing matchups, keeping them from from penetrating the paint. You, there, there's only so much that Rashawn Holmes can do to protect the basket. At some point, if you hit him with enough volume, these guys are going to be able to score, right? Where when you get inside the painted area, usually any good NBA players hitting those shots at a 50% or greater rate. So there's only so much you can do to prevent scoring. And then in turn, if a lot of these guards aren't rotating properly and contesting shots and closing out, you're talking about the number of open three-point shots that are made on them as well. I mean, that needs to be a much more consistent effort. So Fox leading that charge at the point of attack, being a much better defender, putting pressure on the opposing offense. Almost as soon as they cross half court, if Fox becomes a better defender, at least in that regard, brings the effort level, the intensity, sets the tone for everybody else on his team, particularly on the perimeter, that could go a long way. So definitely want to see him improve in, in that area. But offensively, it's about the jump shot. But he's been such an underappreciated player since he came into the NBA, probably should have been drafted higher than the fifth overall pick. Then we moved to Bam out of bio. Center for the Miami Heat was the 14th pick in the draft. I wouldn't necessarily use the term underrated with him. I think especially with the the Miami Heat's run in the NBA Finals, he became a lot more appreciated as a player. Last year averaged almost 19 points per game, nine rebounds a game, five assists per game. One of the better playmaking bigs that we have in the NBA, albeit he doesn't necessarily have the jump shot to go along with some of those passing aspects and, and his face-up game can still be a little better well-rounded because of a lack of jump shot if he was more consistent from long range that could open up even more but last year while he wasn't the most efficient on some of those mid-range looks he was at least a lot more willing to take them um, and even in the first half of the year there was a lot of buzz on social media that he had become a much better mid-range shot maker and that would only continue to open things up for his teammates um, but but bam out of bio being 
one of the more complete players on both ends of the floor in this draft class, highest PER out of anybody in this draft class, 22.7 PER last year. And he had a 62.6 true shooting percentage, 77th percentile in terms of total offense. Again, the playmaking numbers really come to light. When you look at his scoring out of pick and roll sets, he was in the 73rd percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets as the ball handler, not, not the role man, where he was the 85th percentile, but as the ball handler in those sets, and then in the 92nd percentile when you factor in pick and rolls, including passes. So the, those are numbers you don't you don't see those every day from a big man, to, to be perfectly honest. Um, obviously, a really good finisher around the basket, 91st percentile on those shots, finishing about 68% of his looks around the basket. If he becomes a better catch-and-shoot guy, he gets involved in a lot more pick-and-pops, not necessarily... Um, doing everything off of a short roll and then immediately looking to pass. If he can be a better catch and shoot guy, better than the 21st percentile in those looks, that that would also go a long way to helping his overall offensive output. But then when you talk about his defensive versatility, being one of those guys who can guard two through five in, in an NBA lineup and can even hold his own on some point guards in, in some of those matchups as well, especially when he gets switched on to others within pick and roll sets. Bam Adebayo is one of the most complete big men we have in the league and he's only six nine he's not a towering presence like an Embiid or a Jokic but he's an excellent communicator a very smart basketball player and he fits in well with everybody around him he brings that effort that intensity level he grinds he's a worker he has a great rapport with Jimmy Butler I love everything that Bam Adebayo brings to the table and somebody who again is, is still really young he was only a freshman when he came out of Kentucky he can still stand to, to get better in the NBA as he continues to keep improving his perimeter shot John Collins would be the next guy after him the last guy in this tier two and John Collins also had a great coming out party last year shooting it well from outside almost 40 percent from three-point range 83 percent from the free throw line averaged 17.6 points per game overall and seven rebounds was definitely an important presence for Atlanta to have in the postseason especially going up against Philadelphia when you talk about John Collins ability to stretch the floor from the four spot or even the five spot when they went to a lot of small ball lineups and they played him at the center spot being able to reliably stretch the floor confused the defense they didn't know whether he was going to step out pick and pop or if he was going to continue to roll to the basket the type of athlete he is the quick footed high leaper that he is able to vertically space the floor and offer Trey Young another lob threat along with Clint Capella. Both Collins and Clint Capella are a great pairing for each other. Collins not being a, a traditional center in terms of his defense. He, he doesn't really offer a ton when it comes to rim protection. He's not bodying up other fives, but that's what you have Capella there for. That's why the Atlanta Hawks wanted to go out and trade for somebody like Clint Capella, and it allows Collins to be more of a four on defense and really operate around the basket in the dunker spot, spread the floor, and then kind of act as your more traditional standard pick and roll man at the five spot when Capella's off the floor and, and the Hawks do want to go to small ball lineups for a little bit. So he offers so much versatility on the offensive end. I don't know how much better he's going to get or can get defensively. I, I don't think his body's going to fill out to a point where you want him always banging down low with your more traditional fives, but I think that's okay. I think the the amount of offensive value that John Collins brings to the table on a nightly basis, I don't think that necessarily mattered to the Hawks as much, and that's why they gave him 
the, the extension that they that they did. They clearly view him as a max level player, especially after the playoff run last year. There were so many questions. Was John Collins somebody who could be moved? Did did the Atlanta Hawks want to move off of him? They didn't want to pay him. They wanted to kind of save that cap space to go after another target they might have had. But John Collins proved way too valuable in last year's playoff run. And Atlanta wants to build on that success. And what better way to do that than to re-up John Collins and have him on the fold to continue expanding his game and continue fitting in really well with the other offensive pieces the Hawks have in place. So that's tiers one and two. Five players encompass both of those tiers. Now we move on to tier three, which would be our guaranteed one through four starters, first through fourth option in a starting lineup for a really good championship level team, if not now, at some point in their careers. But we we get to where we're at evaluating 2017, going back about four years now. I mean, th- this is really where we're in a make or break position with a lot of these guys. And if they haven't obtained one of these roles already, chances are they probably aren't going to obtain it in the near future. And they're, they're either more in a bench role or ultimately they're, they're, they're kind of getting out of the league. Then at that point, at this point, when you're like four or five years in, that's really where a lot of the development, a lot of the hardcore development has taken place. And at this point, you've kind of established your role in the NBA. You know more about who you are and the, the skills that you're adding. You're not adding completely brand new skills all the time to the table. You're more or less refining and, and tweaking some of your existing skills and just trying to get a little better, get more efficient, and, and see if you can incorporate a little more into the role that you've already established for yourself. But you're not seeing generally major transformations out of players when it comes to like them being in their fourth or fifth year. So in this tier three, ironically, I have the first and second overall picks in this draft back to back in Markel Fultz and Lonzo Ball, Markel Fultz. We, we know the story. He got hurt in his rookie season. His shoulder got messed up. He had to change how he shot the ball. He completely destroyed his jump shot. And it's really been a long rebuild to getting him back to the point where he could knock down some of those pull-up mid-range jump shots that he was known for and then hopefully continuing to expand and get that three-point shot back. And, and yeah, definitely has been a work in progress. He was hurt last year. He only played about, I, I think it was about nine games that he played last year for the Orlando Magic. In the previous year, where he had more of a longer-term season, he showed some progress making jump shots at the very least from the mid-range, but he still lacked more of that complete scorer's repertoire that you saw from him out of the guard spot at Washington. He was one of the most complete scoring guards coming into the NBA, certainly out of this draft class. At the time, he was projected to be the number one overall pick for a reason. We were talking about a point guard who could go out there and average like 27-5-7 and seven. I mean, that, that is, without a doubt, a superstar-level player, somebody who you immediately want to throw a max contract at, a point guard who can potentially also be the face of your franchise. That's what teams thought they were getting out of Markel Fultz at the time. That hasn't panned out. Now, he's not a bad passer. I would actually consider him to be a good passer, a good playmaker out of pick and roll. He can finish around the basket. He can be a, a, a defensive menace at times at the guard spot, given that he is 6'4", with about a 6'10 wingspan. He has the length to certainly be disruptive in passing lanes. He's a really good steals guy, whether he's playing off the ball, playing a passing lane off the ball, making the right read, intercepting a pass. Um, he, he's a little bit of a pickpocket thief 
when it comes to individual on-ball defense as well. Fultz is somebody who's a valuable starting level player now, whether he can ascend himself back into that tier two conversation. Again, he's still incredibly young. He was one of the youngest players in that draft class. I'm I'm still leaving the door a little bit open, but it's more likely than not that he remains in this tier. He he's he remains a starter for the majority of his NBA career, and that's fine. Just not reaching the ceiling that we once thought that he had. It's it's a disappointing story, a sad story. Me being a a 76ers guy, it it hurt when we quite literally traded him for barely even pennies on the dollar. The Sixers really didn't end up getting much of anything back in that trade when they sent him to Orlando. And I'll be interested to see what continues to happen with, with him and his career because Orlando, it's it's that guard log jam. It's not just Markel Fultz. It's Jalen Suggs. It's Cole Anthony, RJ Hampton, um, Gary Harris. There's so many options in that backcourt for Orlando to go to. If Fultz doesn't come back off of this most recent injury resembling more of what he looked like two years ago, I mean, he could he could be out the door too, even though he signed a, a three-year deal before last year, a three-year extension. I mean, he, he could be on the way out. Maybe Orlando moves off of him for a cheap price. Maybe he ends up with a third team. I don't know what's going to happen to Markel Fultz, but I certainly wish nothing but the best for, for that young man. And then the number two pick, Lonzo Ball, didn't end up moving on. So he was drafted by the Los Angeles Lakers, was involved in the infamous Anthony Davis trade that sent Lonzo and, and Brandon Ingram to the New Orleans Pelicans. They were the centerpieces of that trade, along with other draft assets, obviously. And Lonzo Ball's time wasn't exactly the greatest in New Orleans either, although I think he did have a, a pretty underrated year last year when you factor in that he has improved his jump shot. He's become a legitimate three-point shooter. He thought 30, shot 37.8% last year from the three-point line, 78% from the free-throw line, averaged one and a half steals per game, and put up about 15 points per game and six assists. So not your most traditional point guard, not at least like he was projected to be when he was coming into the NBA. He's more of a three and D two guard who can also pass the ball and serve as more of a secondary initiator. He can run pick and roll sets when you need him to. We know about his transition, his hit ahead passes. We know about his court vision. He's a very smart, intelligent young man, but he never quite panned out finishing around the basket. He still finishes rather poorly for a guard his size at about 6'6". He can lack aggressiveness when it comes to attacking the basket in the half court. He can sometimes make poor decisions with the basketball when it comes to passing it. I, I talked talk about his court vision a minute ago, but he can also make some mistakes with the basketball in his hands as well. He's not the most traditional playmaker that we once thought he could be coming out of college. You're more full-time point guard. He's better in a secondary role. Um, and then the defense took a step back last year with New Orleans for, for all that he was actually a really good backcourt defender for the Lakers when he was there, or at least he was definitely on the ascension rise to becoming even more of one. He took a step back last year in New Orleans. Well, is he able to recapture some of that magic for the team that he's on now, Chicago Bulls? He just signed that big deal. I think the Chicago Bulls expect him to be a much better defender 
in the backcourt than he was last year. That's a big reason why they went to go get him because Kobe White's not a defender at the guard spot. Zach Levine hasn't been the best perimeter defender throughout his career. DeMar DeRozan hasn't exactly always been known for his defense on, on the wings. So they're going to look to Lonzo Ball if he's going to be the prime one of the primary guards in that starting lineup. It's not just about some of the playmaking that he can provide. It's not just about him probably being the best pick and roll initiator on that team now from the guard spot, not counting DeMar DeRozan. I consider him more of a wing. It's not just about the fact that he can spread the floor when somebody like DeRozan or Zach Levine does have the ball in their hands and and they get caught in a little bit of a jam and they need to kick the ball out to a reliable shooter from the corner or from the three-point range. Yeah, Lonzo Ball can be those things, but they also really need him to bring an edge defensively. They need him, guys like him and Alex Caruso, to be plus-level defenders in the backcourt to limit some of the penetration from some of these other drivers and, and ball handlers because they don't have your more traditional rim-protecting big manning down the front line in, in Nikola Vucevic. He, he's not the best big man defender. He can get eaten alive and drop coverage. They need stop gaps on the perimeter to limit penetration and limit the amount of possessions that Vucevic gets involved in um, on the defensive end of the floor. So I think Lonzo Ball is going to have a good year for Chicago. I definitely think it's a, an awesome place for him to be. They've formed one hell of a team now when you talk about Ball, Levine, Pat Williams, DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Vucevic, Alex Caruso. They have a really intriguing core of players. And then obviously Kobe White will come back at some point as well. It's all going to be about the defensive end for the Chicago Bulls. How far can they come on that end? And it's that starts not only with Pat Williams being the best defender in that lineup, but then you look to Lonzo Ball to offer up some defensive value as well. So I'll be interested to see exactly what becomes of his career, the the remainder of his career, at least in the short term in Chicago. Then we get to Jonathan Isaac, who was the sixth overall pick. Orlando Magic forward has struggled and battled mightily with injuries. I don't know when he's coming back this year, um, how many games he'll play this year. In his last uh, full season, or his last bit of playing time, he was averaging well, like nine points per game, five rebounds per game, shooting about 47% from the field, 34% from three, almost 78% from the free throw line. So his offensive game was coming around a little bit. He was getting much more comfortable as not only just a standstill jump shooter, but somebody who could take one to two dribbles, pull up and make a shot from the mid range. Obviously he can finish around the basket given his size about six eleven, with all of the requisite length, but Really, he was becoming one of the defensive aces and could have potentially been on his way two years ago to um, a a defensive player of the year award. I mean, he was averaging 1.6 steals per game, 2.3 blocks per game. Is one of those Swiss Army Knight type of defenders can can guard one through four and even masquerade as a five man um, for on defense and for some stretches because of his length, his ability to contest shots around the basket. Jonathan Isaac is one of the most interesting players that we have across the entire NBA. Again, being able to put the ball on the deck, score around the basket, hit perimeter shots, defend at a high level across multiple positions, be a playmaker on defense, not just a one-on-one defender to contest shots. A really intriguing case moving forward, but I just don't know if his body's going to be able to hold up, if he's going to be as healthy 
that he as he needs to be to graduate into that tier two type of player. I think that when he is healthy, he's definitely a tier three. He's he's probably like a, a third option on offense, but again, your primary defensive option on the other end of the floor. So a lot of promise though for Jonathan Isaac. Again, same with a lot of these guys. They're they're still young. They can still get better, maybe not transformationally better but they can still continue to round out their skills. He can get more efficient shooting the basketball. He can be a much more consistent offensive threat. He can get better. It's just about him staying on the floor to do so, to, to continue to evolve his game. And that remains to be seen if he's capable of doing that. We'll, we'll see when he comes back from his most recent injury, if he's able to hold down the fort a little more and, and, and play consistent minutes for the Orlando Magic because they, they could certainly use him especially on the defensive end of the floor. I know that with that backcourt, with, with them still having Terrence Ross in the fold on the wing, they have firepower to score the basketball, but they need a much more consistent defensive presence, something more consistent, even more so than, than Wendell Carter or Mo Bamba having to have the entire weight of the defense on, on their shoulders. They need Jonathan Isaac to come back and be an impact defender on that end. So the next two guys I have here were both drafted in the 20s. Jared Allen was drafted 22nd overall, and OG Ananobi was drafted 23 overall. Two really interesting players. Jared Allen now being a member of the Cleveland Cavaliers, just signed a five-year, $100 million deal, averaged 13 points per game last year, 10 rebounds, shot 62% from the field, put up 1.4 blocks per game, had a 20.1 PER, and a 66.1 true shooting percentage, rounding out his synergy profile. He was in the 93rd percentile in terms of offense, finished well around the basket, was in the 94th percentile, um, finishing in pick and roll sets as the roll man. Another one of these bigs that there's been a pattern with some of these big men that we've talked about over these tiers podcasts, where if you're of a certain size, if you're of a certain athletic profile, if you can finish at a high rate around the basket and bring defensive intensity and value, protecting the rim, maybe switching a little bit onto different matchups, being a transition threat, pushing the pace, rim running, there is still a home for those big men. And a lot of these, a lot of those big men are getting paid. They're getting bigger contracts. They're, they're valuable assets to the teams that they're with. And while Jared Allen might never evolve his game into anything more offensively when it comes to shooting the basketball. He's still efficient enough in his role. He's enough of a threat on the boards on both ends of the floor. He's a reliable scorer with what he does, and then he's a rim protector. That's a very valuable role to fill in the NBA, even so in today's game where you think everything is downsized, but not everything. Jared Allen is still one of those very valuable big men, and he's going to play a role in Cleveland guarding some of those five men, banging down low with those matchups consistently, being much more of an effort rebounder on both ends of the floor. I'd like the fit with Evan Mobley going to the Cleveland Cavaliers. I've said that a repeated number of times on this podcast, but the main reason why I liked Evan going to Cleveland was because he had Jared Allen to play that five spot. Evan doesn't have the pressure of having to guard the other team's best big man and play the five for 30 to 32 minutes a night. He doesn't have to bang down low with those guys all the time. He doesn't have to average nine or 10 or 11 rebounds per game. Jared Allen can do a lot of the dirty work and make Evan's life a lot easier as to where 
Jarrett will have the space around the basket to operate as a role man or even post up at times. And Evan's perimeter-oriented skill set when you talk about his ball handling, his playmaking off the dribble, his ability in time, he'll be able to stretch the floor, especially from three-point range. He can already hit mid-range shots now. You saw some of that take shape in summer league. But those two are going to be great front court complements with each other. It's it's only a matter of time. And even, even if Evan's coming off of the bench, they brought in Lowry Market and they, they traded for him and they gave him a deal. Lowry is another one of those good fits with Jared Allen. Lowry will, will stretch the floor, act as a floor spacer on offense, and Jared Allen can, can man the paint, score around the basket on offense and patrol the paint and, and certainly offer rim protection on defense. So great fit for the Cavaliers. Um, again, such value when we're talking about a tier three level player with the 22nd pick in the draft, same thing with OGN and OB being the 23rd pick in the draft. Jump shooting was the biggest question for Ananobi. Everybody saw the potential with his size, his athletic ability. They knew that he would be an impact defender on the wing and even moving up to the four spot defensively. He could be like that two through four type of wing defender, but nobody knew how good of a jump shooter he could become. And, He's answered those questions. He shot 48% from the field last year, almost 40% from three, 78% from the free throw line, um, 79th percentile he rated out in synergy in terms of spot-up makes, um, 77th percentile in terms of transition scoring, 85th percentile scoring off of all jump shots, 85th percentile as well on catch-and-shoot looks, making 42.5% of those shots. And then he rated out in the 83rd percentile in terms of in terms of converting on long jump shots. So that's primarily three-point shots. So OG Adenobi has really turned himself into a fantastic jump shooter in the NBA, whether he's open or contested. I don't know how much of that mid-range ability is still there to be tapped into and potentially expanded upon. But even if this is the majority of what he is, a 3 and D role player on the wing who can offer value multiple different spots on the floor and can go out there and guard the other team's best player. He's still an incredibly value ass, valuable asset for Toronto to have in the fold. And then when you mix in the other guys that they have of similar size, they just drafted Scotty Barnes. They still have Pascal Siakam. They drafted Delano Banton. They still have Chris Boucher. They have this very interesting mix of these like six, eight, six, nine guys and OGN and OB fits right in with his two-way skill set. A very valuable player for Toronto to have moving forward. And I'm glad that he, he he's kind of had that developmental arc that you would want to see from a wing of his type coming out of college. This is like the best case scenario from a developmental standpoint for somebody like Ananobi, who we had questions about the jump shot. Well, he's answered those questions and now he is a really good jump shooter by NBA standards. So I'm really proud of the work that he's put in, in the NBA and, and what he's been able to accomplish in a relatively short amount of time. And then last but not least, in this Tier 3, I have Dylan Brooks, Memphis Grizzlies wing. You look at some of the raw numbers, you question his efficiency, you question, you know, is he definitely a starting caliber player or a definite starting caliber player on other teams outside of Memphis? It's not just about maybe his lack of efficiency, where he rates out in terms of percentiles and different synergy categories, but... While he's not the most efficient shot maker, he can make a lot of tough shots. He can make a variety of shots. He can knock down 
three-point shots off the catch. He can create his own three-point shot off the dribble. He can convert in the mid-range. He can finish around the basket. He can make a high percentage of his free throws when he actually gets to the line and draws contact. Again, efficiency is the key word here, but at some point, you also have to look in, at your lineup and, and determine, do you have a shot maker of Brooks's caliber in terms of can he hit a variety of shots? Is he at least capable of hitting those tougher level shots on an NBA floor? And he absolutely has been capable of doing so. He's done that. And I think he will continue to do that for the Memphis Grizzlies in the future. And I know that he's a very rugged defender. He's a tough defender. He fouls a lot because he is such an intense physical defender. But if that's the worst that I'm getting is he's missing some shots and he's maybe fouling a little more than he should on the defensive end. But given what he can bring to the table as a tough shot maker, somebody who continues to stretch the floor from three-point range, he brings enough size at that two-three position, that wing position. You're, you're willing to live with somebody like Dylan Brooks who has proven he can average 17 points per game in the NBA, can hit a variety of shots, and offer enough value on both ends of the floor to warrant a starting-level spot. And when you get that kind of value again and the 45th pick in the draft – that's way too good of a deal to pass up. He, he is a starter in Memphis, and I expect him to continue having an impact on that organization for, for years to come. So we get to Tier 4. Tier 4 is essentially your, your sixth man type of player, or if he's in the starting lineup, he's like the fifth best guy in the lineup. Maybe he's a, a spot starter type of bench guy, or he's like a specialist in that lineup. Maybe he's only there to shoot the basketball or he's only there to offer rim protection and do almost nothing else. Um, that's the type of tier. That's the type of caliber player we're talking about. Now I have seven guys in a tier four. Lowry Markinen is probably the most talented player out of this tier four group of guys, at least when you consider his, his draft position and what everybody projected him to be when he was coming out of college, a legitimate stretch four who could offer some scoring off the bounce, wasn't exactly a bad defender. And when you look at a lot of his numbers, even some of his synergy percentiles, he rates out really well. 90th percentile in terms of total offense, 96th percentile scoring out of post-ups, 81st percentile hitting spot-up looks, 78th percentile um, hitting off screens, 90th percentile in terms of scoring off cuts. And his numbers, including passes, are not bad. He's a more than capable jump shooter in multiple different categories. So you look at Markin and you go, well, why do I only have him in a tier four? Why is he not a tier three guy? Isn't he going to start in Cleveland? He may start. And he's certainly shown flashes of what he's capable of, especially his fantastic rookie year where everybody looked around and they looked at what the Chicago Bulls did with that seventh pick and they go, holy crap, maybe Markin should have been drafted before number seven overall. Maybe he would have been worth a top five pick. I know plenty of people who gave him top five grades coming into the 2017 NBA draft, but he just hasn't put it together consistently enough for me to say that he's on the same level as some of those other guys that I have in tier three. Those, those tier three guys that I talked about, I think either still have enough promise and enough talent to warrant a bigger role when we're talking about guys like Fultz and, and Lonzo Ball, 
or they've shown more complete flashes and they have easier project skill sets in terms of definite value when we're talking about Jonathan Isaac, Jared Allen, OG Ananobi, Dylan Brooks. They bring much more of a sure thing to the table than, than what I think I've seen at this point from Lowry marketing. It's a big reason why Lowry wasn't as valuable of a guy to re-sign to a bigger contract. It's why it took a longer time for him to ultimately have a home to come into this NBA season. And I'm again, I'm not saying that he's going to be in tier four for forever. Could he jump back up a tier and land with some of those other guys in tier three? Absolutely. But it's going to require him putting together a very consistent campaign for Cleveland. He has the opportunity to do so. He will likely be the starting power forward for that team. They will look to him to continue to add offensive value, especially if the Cavaliers do make a Ben Simmons type of trade and they give up one of those two scoring dynamos in the backcourt. Obviously, Larry Markinen will have a lot more offensive pressure on his shoulders. He will have to prove to me that he can be a second or a third option on a really good the championship-level team. And he's not just the fifth guy you put in the lineup because he's big and he can hit threes. He's got to do a little bit more for me. That That's all I'm asking from him, but still a valuable player. And he would be the guy who I would have at the top of that tier four, potentially ready to break into tier three. Luke Kennard, drafted by the Pistons with a 12th pick, ended up being moved to the Clippers last year. Did provide value for them in a backcourt role as more of like your backup offensive initiator. Obviously, again, when you look at a lot of the synergy percentiles, he checks out very well from three-point range, from the free-throw line, can hit a variety of different shots. But he's he's the guy who, yes, he can do enough things from the perimeter, scoring the basketball or distributing within pick-and-roll sets, but he's not somebody who you want to hand a lot of volume to. He's not a high-volume scorer, shot maker, and playmaker. He can do those things in pinches, in spurts, He's more of a heat check guy. He can get very hot, but he can also have a, you know, a two, three, four, five game stretch where he's not doing much of anything on the offensive end. And he's never exactly been a, a good defensive player, at least not to the standards that you would expect out of a lottery pick. Somebody who has size on the perimeter is like a six, five guard with enough length who should be able to offer more defensive value than he has up to this point in his career. So that's why I would have Luke Kennard as a tier four guy, again, another, another guy who could be a starter in the NBA. If he brought a little more consistent offensive value to the table and he wouldn't have those stretches where he could disappear for, for five or six games. And really the same thing can be said about the next guy I have here. Kyle Kuzma is now on the Washington wizards was involved in the Russell Westbrook trade. He wasn't kept because he just wasn't consistent enough to be on a title contending team like the Lakers for the long term has stretches, especially early on in his NBA career where he would get really hot from the field. He'd put up 20 plus points per game a night, but he's had so many cold spells, especially when you factor in his role has changed throughout his entire Lakers tenure. He went from being a starter player on a rebuilding team to um, a bench guy, like a seventh man or at a best case scenario, the first guy the Lakers would bring off the bench to provide some shot making and, and, and spread the floor for some of those other guys in the lineup, particularly somebody like a LeBron James. Um, Kuzma just hasn't been able to fully put it together. He was only the 27th pick in the draft. He was a late first round pick. So when you factor in the type of value that he has brought in certain situations, he's become a better defender. 
him being six foot nine, being a, a, a multifaceted defender, getting better on and off the ball, that does provide value in and of itself. If he could be a more consistent outside shooter, if that 36% was around 38, 39%, and he was reliably getting to the line, converting more than 69% of his free throws, and he was a better shot maker and overall offensive threat than just being in the 44th percentile in terms of total offense, maybe he'd still be with the Lakers. Maybe he'd still be one of LeBron's more favorited bench guys. But he's with the Wizards now. Can he rehab his image a little bit with the Wizards? I, I don't know. That remains to be seen. But at the very least, he's gotten paid. He got to live in Los Angeles. He got a championship. He certainly has successes off the court as well. So Kuzma's had a pretty strong NBA career for somebody that was drafted 27th overall. And he's likely this, this is where he finds his home is like a sixth man or best case scenario. He's the last guy in a starting lineup being a, a, a shooting specialist. If we can even call him a shooting specialist, when you compare him to other guys, I would give that moniker to. Then we have Derek white. San Antonio Spurs guard was the 29th pick in the draft has become a terrific defensive guard in the NBA, more than capable finisher around the basket from the guard spot, has a really good runner and a floater. It's crazy. When I saw Derek White at Portsmouth, the Portsmouth Invitational was really where a lot of people, especially the San Antonio Spurs, got to scout him. I think the Spurs had like four scouts at the Portsmouth Invitational that year, and a lot of people were wowed by the amount of three-point shots he was hitting at that camp. And everybody thought that this guy, could, if he's bringing dead-eye shooting ability from the guard spot into the NBA, can be a secondary playmaker, can offer some defensive value. Like, that's a massive, massive get when we're talking about late first-round value. And the three-point shot has been the biggest part of his game lacking at the NBA level. He he had a, a we'll call it a decent year last year, 34.6%. From three, but when you take a look at his efficiency scoring out of um, different types of sets, he was only the 25th percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets as the ball handler. Um, he only rated out in the 13th percentile in terms of jump shots made off the dribble. Wasn't exactly in a good percentile in terms of medium or long range shots. Only decent off the catch. So if Derek White was much more of a thing shooting the basketball, I think there'd be a really strong chance that I'd have him in that tier three, considering he's been a starter for the San Antonio Spurs for, for quite a while. But I think the reason why I have him in a tier four is because the Spurs have been in this rebuilding or retooling type of phase for a number of years now. And is Derek White a starter on a lot of other NBA teams? Probably not. He's probably your first guard off the bench. Is definitely capable in a spot starter role, obviously, because he's been starting for the San Antonio Spurs. He can hit different shots for you, provide defensive value, but he's not that consistent shot maker at like the point guard spot, for example, that you definitely want in your starting lineup for a really good the championship level team. And he's a little bit undersized for that two guard spot. So that's why I have him as a tier four. Josh Hart for the New Orleans Pelicans, the best rebounding wing, or one of the best rebounding wings I, I've seen in the NBA. Another guy, if he was a much more consistent jump shooter from outside, if he shot better than 32.6% from three-point range, he'd be a much more valuable starter. He's a capable and willing passer. He can make enough shots to keep himself on the floor. As I mentioned, his rebounding value for somebody his size is terrific. But 
he's not as complete of an offensive player and not as reliable of a shot maker, especially from outside that you would want him to be to be a consistent starter. Like you, you've heard on enough podcasts, you've read in enough pieces that if the New Orleans Pelicans, if the best that they're doing is trotting out a lineup and they're expecting Josh Hart to hit every single corner three-point shot that comes his way, even if he's open, he's probably not making all of them, or he's probably not making an incredibly high percentage of them. He's just never put it together, especially from the corners in terms of his three-point shot. If that was a different story, that was a different case, then his, his, his tier would be a different story. I'd probably have him as a tier three guy, even though he's not starting to the New Orleans Pelicans. He could be on another team and likely start somewhere else if that was the case, but it just hasn't panned out that way. So I have him as a tier four player. And the last two spots I have for, for tier four, and then we'll, we'll put a bow on this podcast. I have Thomas Bryant for the Washington Wizards, who actually has been a starting caliber player last year. We'll, we'll come back and, and has a chance to be a starter for the Washington Wizards. I have him as a tier four because he, he fits that mold perfectly for this draft class of being like the fifth best guy in the lineup, right? Like he's not a high volume offensive big man to where you want to funnel a lot of responsibility to him. He's not exactly your, your most shut down rim protector that you might have, but in a more limited offensive role, he can be hyper efficient at a 70.4 true shooting percentage last year. While the, the, the three point shooting and, and the free throw shooting is a work in progress from a volume standpoint, still on two, 0.1 three-point attempts per game last year. He shot almost 43% from the three-point line and then 66.7% from the free-throw line, a work in progress. But he rated out in the 99th percentile in terms of total offense, provides value, making some open jump shots here and there, providing value off cuts, offensive rebound putbacks, and transition offense. So he provides enough value on enough areas of the floor to where he could be a Tier 3 player. He might bump himself up into that tier at some point this year that remains to be seen if he can be that consistent and provide that much offensive value when you factor in volume um but still the the type of player that the wizards now have in the fold considering he was the 42nd pick in the draft that is massive 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 value for that draft spot and and i cannot wait to see some of the things that washington does with that front court how they stagger the minutes for brian and gafford talk about throwing two different looks at, a po at an opposing defense when you have Gafford being the athletic rim running vertical lob spacer. And then you have Thomas Bryan who can finish around the basket on post-ups, but can also stretch the floor for you at times, just two different dynamics. The wizards can throw at other teams to catch them off guard. And then the last guy I have here, 51st pick in the 2017 NBA draft, my favorite backup point guard in the league. Sorry, Jalen Brunson, but I think Monte Morris is the best backup point guard in the NBA. He has provided massive value for the Denver Nuggets. He's going to find himself playing a lot of minutes, a lot more minutes than he has in the past for the Nuggets this year, given Jamal Murray's injury. We don't know fully when Jamal Murray's coming back. The rumors around March or April, but Morris will get more opportunities. And in a bench role last year, 10.2 points per game, three assists per game, 48% shooting from the field, 38% from three-point range, and 79.5% from the free throw line, 75th percentile in terms of total offense, 86th percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets as the ball handler, 75th percentile pick and rolls, including passes. 
Um, and, and a surprisingly good finisher for somebody his size. He's listed at 6'3". I think he's more like 6'2", 81st percentile finisher on the basket, making about 66% of those shots. And then we, we know the, the kind of perimeter dynamo that he can be as well. The steady playmaker. Steady is the best word for Monte Morris's game. He, he provides so much stability to a team on both ends of the floor and has actually had a pretty good synergy profile as well. When you look at a lot of his defensive numbers, he is a really good individual defender at the guard spot. So if he's playing more minutes for the Denver Nuggets next year, I'm all for it because he is a spot starter type of point guard. He is capable of coming into a starting lineup and providing value on both ends of the floor. So that's tiers one through five. I mean, one through four, excuse me. Tier five, there's really three main callouts to make. Josh Jackson, Zach Collins, and Malik Monk. Two of those guys in particular, Jackson and Collins, I was incredibly high on coming into the 2017 NBA draft. They ended up being huge misses. Jackson being for more off-court personal reasons that I've already gone into on this podcast multiple times. And then Collins just cannot stay healthy to save his life. And now Jackson carved out a nice bench roll for him last year with the Detroit Pistons and Zach Collins now finds himself on the San Antonio Spurs. So we will see if Collins can provide value for the Spurs and we'll see if Jackson continues to provide value for the Pistons. Malik Monk is the most interesting player out of the three because he comes into the Los Angeles Lakers on a minimum deal. A player that young generally doesn't engage in any sort of ring chasing efforts, but if Malik Monk comes in, can help the Lakers win a championship and he is somewhat of a, a, a contributor in doing so, then he could spark up his value a little more and, and go after a different kind of contract and then look to leave the Lakers in the short term after he's helped them secure a title and has hopefully put up some good numbers and efficient numbers in doing so. Um, has been a very one-dimensional player up to this point in his career. He's primarily a, a small really small undersized two guard who is an outside shooter, not an incredible playmaker, not a good defender. We'll see if he can rehab his image a little bit with the Lakers and help them win basketball games. But those are pretty much the main call outs from this draft class. I could technically, technically mention Harry Giles too. Boy, what a sad story of his. He was without a doubt at, at some point, the most talented player in this entire draft class, but just suffered heartbreaking injuries towards the tail end of his high school career um, Duke, the whole Duke situation didn't pan out either. And it hasn't panned out for him in the NBA. He's now with the Los Angeles Clippers, anything he may be able to do to rehab himself and, and, and get himself in a better situation when it comes to playing the game. I wish nothing but the best for Mr. Giles, just, just a, a sad story overall, but those are your 2017 NBA draft tiers. So what have we learned from this exercise? Why was it important to, to go back and, and to look at these draft classes and, and do something like this? Um, I, I mentioned it sort of at the top when, when, when I did the first podcast doing the, the 2020 revisit just one year later, but I talked about how many players we went through at length between tiers one through four and even some of the names that I was able to hit on in like a tier five. There were so many players that have the door wide open to make an impact in the NBA because they only have one year's experience in the league. They're incredibly young. They all have their own different developmental paths to where they could rise up a few tiers, maybe even break into like a tier three or tier two 
in some of those tier two guys cases, maybe even get up into an MVP caliber tier. There's so much unknown when you look at those more recent draft classes. And even when you're evaluating a draft class going into the upcoming draft, that you're looking forward to. We're going to do the same thing with 2022. I'm sure I'm going to be talking about a mile long list of prospects throughout the year. And then when I do my tiers breakdown for 2022, I'm sure I'm going to be breaking up that podcast series, just like I did this year, talking about a boatload of guys. But when you go back and you look at these draft classes, three, four, five years down the road, it's amazing to see how that list just shrinks. And from what could have been about 30-something players long is now, 2017 is now like 18 players long in terms of real impact rotational players are better. And it's really nice to talk about projection with a lot of these draft picks, but not all of them are going to pan out in, in the ways that we're projecting before they get into the league. It's just not possible. It's not going to happen. We'll see if... 2021 and 2020 were truly outlier draft classes in terms of overall depth. If a lot of those guys end up holding on to consistent rotational jobs three, four, five years down the road, that remains to be seen. But generally, when we go back and we do this exercise, that that's not the case. There's only so many jobs in the NBA. It's an incredibly tough job to have. It's a tough career. This is the highest level of basketball that's played in the entire world. You would expect guys to fall out of the league and, and, and not live up to some of the promise that they had in high school and college. It, it's a cold world out there, everyone. And evaluating talent is not easy. Scouting will never be easy. I have plenty of hits and I also have plenty of misses. And doing this is not about right or wrong. It's not about being the best scout out there. It's not about being perfect. It's about getting better every single day. And it's about identifying talent and helping somebody else get better every single day. When you do this job, when you hop on a platform like this and you make it about the love for the game and you make it about more than just yourself and your ego, that I think is when you see the most amazing results and when you actually learn something from doing something like this. That's what I've learned throughout my time doing this. I'm going on my 11th year trying my hand at scouting and evaluating basketball talent. We'll see. We'll, we'll see how I do this year. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely see. I'll have some hits. I'll have some misses, but that's what it's all about. It's about prioritizing the players in the situation and always looking to encourage and help others understand and learn about the game of basketball. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this. That's really at the forefront of everything that I do on the platform that is draft deeper. And I thank everyone out there for listening to this podcast series it was a long series to get through a lot of players to talk about. That's a good thing because that means the league has incredible depth and we're going to see how much depth gets added for 2022. The next few podcasts that I'm going to have coming out NBA preview podcast, the 2021 22 season is right around the corner. I got 30 questions for 30 NBA teams with the overstated NBA show. We're going to have both of those episodes coming out. Part one will be the Eastern conference. Part two will be the Western conference. And then I have a very special guest lined up in a week where I'm going to do NBA awards ballot previews. We're going to run through our top three ballots for, for every award of the books, plenty of talk, obviously about the rookies, but certainly every other award that 
media could vote for at the end of the year. So I'm excited to get through all those NBA previews. And then once we have those pods out of the way, it's 2022 NBA draft season. The moment that everyone's been waiting for, I'll be fully ready to dive in. And by that point, when I am ready to dive in, start doing some prospect previews, we'll, we'll, we'll be at November 9th before we know it. The Champions Classic will be here and we'll be off to the races. So thank you all, everyone, again, for listening to these episodes. Make sure that you're tuned in for future content leading up to 2022. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Follow us on Twitter, at DraftDeeper. Engage with us in conversation. I love talking about this game. I love interacting with all of you. It's the biggest reason why I do this. And I cannot wait for the big year that we're going to have between being on this platform, doing some more work with, with the overstated and coming back to writing and doing a lot more work with a new cast of characters. Well, I say new cast, but a lot of these people I'm going to be collaborating with on a new platform, they're, they're, they're existing in the draft space. You know exactly who they are. I cannot wait as we get closer to the unveiling of a new platform. I cannot wait to share more about content that I have coming in other spaces. So definitely stay tuned to everything we're doing over here at Draft Deeper. Plenty more to come. But for now, hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.